we, we have this tendency to deify or demonize in politics. But for Christians, we seek the transcendent. You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. In our 101 level courses, we focus on helping people develop the basic spiritual skills that they need to slow down the toxic effects of political polarization on our churches and on our communities. Last week, we kicked off a new ongoing series of 201 level events that will each focus on specific questions we have about American politics or specific skills we need to start engaging politics in ways that are more constructive. Last week, we focused on how Christians can relate to satire and fake news on the internet. In the first half, we welcomed a Christian satirist from Australia to talk with us about the goals of his work, the role of satire in the Bible, and how Christians can use humor to bridge major divides today. The second half of the evening was a live interview with him and an audience Q&A. To kick off this season of the podcast, we're going to share the first half of that event, the presentation half. We recorded it all via Zoom, so the audio might get a little choppy in some places, but if there's anything you can't make out, you can find a full transcript of the presentation, plus all of his visual aids, on our website, christiancivics.org. After the presentation, I'll come back and let you know how to sign up for some other upcoming classes, including a workshop on talking with your loved ones about race. Thank you all very much for joining us tonight. My name is Rick Barry. I'm the co-founder and the executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. For those of you who are new to our work, the Center for Christian Civics is a nonpartisan ministry based in Washington, D.C., dedicated to empowering Christians in the U.S. to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. Our work has a particular and specific focus on partisan depolarization in the church and on fostering the posture and skills that Christians need to become agents of healing in the health of our democracy. I'm really excited that you're joining us for the first in what's going to end up being an ongoing series exploring some of the most pressing and urgent and specific questions that Christians face in American politics. The term fake news was first popularized in the U.S. in the mid-90s by the now sadly late comedian Norm MacDonald, who would kick off his weekend update segment on Saturday Night Live every week by announcing that it was time for the fake news. According to MacDonald, he thought that introduction signaled for the audience that they were in for something absurd. He really reveled in the tension of calling news fake, since news was, to him, by definition, true. Over the past few years, fake news has gone from a label used by humorists and satirists to a term academics and media critics used to describe 
viral or even deliberate misinformation to a term political figures use to try to discredit their detractors. And the lines between those three uses of the term aren't always clear. As a recent article in the New York Times about the birds aren't real conspiracy pointed out, a lot of conspiracy theories today and a lot of viral political misinformation today that people really believe clearly started out as examples of satire, uh, attempts to make the kind of fake news Norm Macdonald talked about, not the kind of fake news a defensive politician would talk about. Tonight, we're going to welcome the director of the Damascus Drop Bear to talk with us about his own experience creating fake news and what that experience has taught him about living out a Christian commitment to truth. The Damascus Drop Bear, for those of you stateside who might not know, is an Australian ministry that describes itself as producing fake news for the faithful, producing Christian satire news that helps people laugh, then think about politics and culture from a biblical worldview. Their articles skewer both Christian culture. One of my personal favorite headlines from them reads, keyboard missionaries anointed to argue with atheists on Facebook. But it also skewers Australia's latest political hot potatoes. This year, they introduced two new provocative characters, Woke Jesus and Alt-Right Paul. And you can follow the exploits of Woke Jesus and Alt-Right Paul on Instagram and Twitter. Before we welcome the director in to talk a little bit about his work, I want to give you a couple notes. First off, in addition to pursuing ministry through mockery, our guest tonight also works in a job where he has to interact with government agencies sometimes. Given the somewhat provocative nature of what the drop bear produces and the somewhat sensitive nature of the other work that he does, he asked me if he can keep his mask on tonight and if I can withhold his name. And I, we all agreed. We didn't think that was too big of an ask to put on us, given that he's crossing time and space and time zones to be with us. Another note he wanted me to make sure to mention is that the humor in the Damascus drop bear is definitely clearly and exclusively aimed at an Australian audience, and we're separated from them by a common language. So even if we might understand the words on the page, sometimes the humor might not translate to American sensibilities or American frames of reference. He swears that if there's anything he talks about that you don't find funny, it's because you're an American, not because it's a bad joke. And now, without further ado, please join me in welcoming the director of the Damascus Drop Bear. Hello, everyone. Good evening to those in the United States. It's uh, a pleasure to be here. Thank you to the Center for Christian Civics for having us here. I am the director of the Damascus Drop Bear. And for, for those in the US, I've actually taken the liberty of flipping our screen upside down. Obviously, as Australians, they do Zoom the other way around. So uh, hopefully you can all see and hear me properly. Now, I, I thought I'd, I'd start by talking about uh, the mask. Why, why the mask? There are three reasons why, and Rick mentioned one of them, but I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. But firstly, you, you've got to understand, and, and there may have been some stories that you've seen uh, in the United States, 
about the oppressive Australian regime around lockdowns and restrictions and everything like that with this new variant that we've had. They've now asked us all to wear masks, even over Zoom. That's how oppressive and restrictive the Australian government has become. So that's one reason. Uh, the second reason, and this one is actually a true reason, is that uh, unfortunately, we directors of the Damascus drop there do not have the support to do this full time like, as much as we'd love it. So we all have to have day jobs and a number of our day jobs involve political engagement, directly involved in politics. And unfortunately in Australia, probably you can relate for those of you in the US, debate is so divisive and toxic sometimes that we've had a number of cases where we're Christians in the public square have been individually targeted, their employers targeted, their families targeted. This is not an exaggeration. And so having uh, a little bit of a controversial ministry like this requires a, a slight separation there. So we've been careful to keep our directors anonymous as part of setting this whole thing up, recognizing that is a challenge. So that's a, a genuine reason. And lastly, uh, the reason for wearing this is we do actually sell these masks. For those who can't read it properly, don't wash your hands like pilot. This is uh, what I like to call aggressive mask evangelism, where you go out in public and uh, people look at you in odd ways and eventually someone confronts you and you get to actually explain who Pilot is exactly and what you're really trying to say. So we do sell these on our website. So if I, I get boring, you can go and surf that and have a look at the range of amusing mask evangelism aspects that we have. So. Look, I've got uh, 15 minutes to talk with you today before we go into some questions from Rick and, and from yourselves, but I thought I'd spend the time discussing three things. Uh, number one is who we are as the Damascus Dropper, a little bit of a background and story and, and why we're doing what we're doing and even explaining the name. Uh, secondly, why we believe satire is actually a really useful tool for public engagement, particularly this time in history, but also looking at examples of biblical satire and historical satire and how it's been used in the past. The third thing I want to talk about is really looking a little bit more broadly at how we can use these creative approaches to break down some of the divides. And this is, I think, the heart of the Center for Christian Civics. And what they are trying to do is have these discussions around dealing with divides in politics and in the church. So let me first talk about who we are. The Damascus drop there, uh, we started at the start of last year, right before the pandemic. We wanted to help people laugh and think about theology, culture, the church, politics, all of these things from a biblical worldview. So our, our mission, really a part of it, is to help others engage with the Bible, uh, explore questions around religion in Australia specifically, but also more broadly, and ultimately um, see Christian principles and ethics have a role in shaping the public debate. In terms of the name, it, it's an interesting one. The Damascus drop there. I guess the most obvious aspect is the road to Damascus uh, with the Apostle Paul, where he first saw the lights and saw Lord Jesus right there. So I guess the reason we chose that is because we recognize that there is a journey that we're taking and we want to have these revelation moments, these understandings that take us deeper. Um, but we also thought about the situation of modern Damascus, the city of Damascus in Syria. This city, you know, has been a war zone in the midst of a war zone for a long time now. And maybe that's an illustration of where we're at in, in regards to culture at the moment, where it is a bit like a war zone. And so the modern Damascus represents that. 
the question is what we do with this war. You know, do we jump in and fight or are there more creative and redemptive opportunities to engage? So that's the first half. The second half, which is the fascinating one, just put your hand up if you've ever heard of a drop there before. I'm not seeing many hands and this is understandable. The drop there is actually what we talk about when a tourist comes to Australia. They'll talk about all the exciting things they're going to do around the country with Sydney or Melbourne or going out to, to Uluru, formerly called Ezra. And we will always warn them, you've got to be careful because there's a lot of animals in Australia that are trying to kill you. Snakes and crocodiles. And you're probably familiar with that idea. And we say there's one thing you've got to be really careful of, and that's the drop bears. They're a cousin to the koala, except they are much more vicious and they sit up in trees. They've got big long claws. They've got some venom and they will literally just drop out of a tree on top of you if you're walking through the bush and you've got to be really careful of them. Now, this is actually not true. I'm letting you in. It's not, it's the great Australian joke simply to scare tourists. And it's, it's wonderfully funny for Australians. We think that's hilarious to make people more scared for some reason. That's our, our humor. Being part of the great Australian joke, that also brings that depth to our name of, of saying that we are, we are looking at humor and satire. But if I could just tell you a story about the significance of satire, and this is around the time this came about as well, the start of last year, we had some horrible bushfires go through Australia. We were talking millions of hectares of land burnt up, tens of millions of animals killed in these massive bush fires. It was a horrible time. I one of the capital cities uh, in, in Canberra, just around Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. And the whole city was covered in smoke for a few weeks where we really couldn't go outside. It was that bad. It was a horrible time. But then this video came up on the internet. A Scottish journalist had come over to cover the bushfires and had obviously been sucked into this story the, the guy she was staying with had told her about drop beds and she believed it absolutely. And so they ended up making this video of her where they dressed her up in full, almost armor. They said, would you like to hold the drop there? And they were talking all about it and they dressed her up in this full armor. They, they dressed her up in, in goggles, motocross gear and gave her a koala telling her it was a drop there. And she was terrified. And you know, koalas are, are really cute and cuddly, but right at the end of it, she, she realized she'd been had and all of the people around were laughing and she was, she took the joke very well, but it was really at a time of tragedy that satire, this joke came in. And as Australians, it was really important that it, it realizing that humor actually has a, a really important role to play in tragedy. For those who know the famous satire site, The Onion, first really big internet satire site. When 9-11 happened uh, all those years ago, they, they had this question of, do we do satire around 9-11? Do we just completely, we don't touch it at all? And they had a big discussion about this. And eventually they, they decided, yes, we will do it. We'll do it carefully, but yes, we'll do satire. And it was probably their most successful edition ever, the 9-11 satire edition. And I think that actually Satire can bring laughter in the midst of tra tragedy and plays an important role. So anyway, that's, that's why we're called the uh, Damascus Drop there. And uh, so what I want to talk about now is why we think satire is important for Christians and a useful tool. In Australia, if you look at the top 10 shared posts every day, there's a list on, on Twitter, 
the at least release of the top 10 Australians shared and engaged with social media posts every single day. And without exception, every single day, there is a satire site on there, a fake news story hitting the top 10 shared and engaged things in Australia. Now that's very significant because it means that it is one of the most powerful communication tools that there are in Australia at the moment. And so the obvious question would be, why would the, the church resolve now? Why aren't we in that space? To quote the, the fan, I don't know who said it, but the, the famous line of why should the devil have all the good music? Most of the satire companies in Australia though, are look, to be frank, are, are quite vulgar and they're quite ideologically driven. They attack individuals and people like this. For us, it, it, we see that and we see that actually these things are only increasing division. So what does Christian satire look like? How, how do you love your neighbor as a satirist? How do you actually bring unity as a satirist? G.K. Chesterton once said that humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling with the handle. Humor can get in under the door while seriousness is still fumbling with the handle. This is an important area for us to engage with. We've got a theologian here in Australia called Michael Bird. He's, he's one of our top figures. He's written 20, 30 books in theology, Incredible Mind. And he put this tweet up the other day, said, I, I think we need a new Christian satire site, kind of like the Babylon Bee, with, without the pathological fixation on Alexandria Oscar Cortez. I'm not trying to criticize the Babylon Bee. Obviously, they were one of the inspirations for our work. But I find this really interesting that a top theologian is saying what we need is good Christian satire. And maybe ones that's a little bit less ideological, a little bit less to visit. I think that is worth paying attention to. I want to give you two examples of satire and discernment and Christian discipleship. The first one comes from the Bible. The second one comes from history. We'll turn this into a, a mini Bible study for those who have your Bibles here. 1 Kings 22 is the passage that I'm going to read. I'll just summarize it, but the passage I'm working on, and it's it tells a story of the prophet Micaiah. And it's one I, ha I hadn't remembered this story. I only came across it again recently. The prophet Micaiah, 1 Kings 22, and it's around the time of King Ahab, which if you remember, King Ahab was a very poor king of Israel. And he was wanting to go to this war with another king, King of Aram. And so he goes to this, uh, this ally and he says, look, um, let's go to war. Come and join me. We'll go to war. We'll take back this land. And the other guy says, look, you know, I reckon we should get some counsel from the Lord first. So he, he goes and says, all right, we'll get some counsel. And they get about 400 prophets. And there's a mix of all sorts of prophets, all sorts of different gods. And every single one of them says, yes, go to war. This is what God wants or this God wants. That. All the gods want you to go to war. This is it. But the, the ally of King Ahab, hold on, what about Yahweh, the old God? Who, no one's giving a, a prophecy from him. There's, none of these prophets have, have particularly been spot on. Let's get one of those as well. Is there any of these prophets of the Lord, of Yahweh? And Ahab goes, yes, there is. There's one. There's the prophet Micaiah. I hate him. He never says anything good, never prophesies anything good to me. But the, the ally insists, and so they... um. They, all right, they go and find the prophet Micaiah and the advisor who comes along with him strongly advises him before he goes in. He said, look, this is what all the other prophets are saying to go to war. The king wants to go to war. We know this is what the right path is. I strongly advise you to speak 
in favor of this motion of going to war. And then in, uh, so it comes before King Ahab. And then in, in verse 15, King Ahab says, okay, Micaiah, should we go to war or not? And Micaiah says, yes, attack and be victorious. And King Ahab looks at him and, and goes, hold on, that doesn't sound right. No, no, you, you have to tell me the truth here. You have to tell me what God is, is actually saying. And then Micaiah goes, look, you're right. And in fact, the Lord has decreed disaster upon you. You go to war, you're going to die. Your sheep are going to be scattered. That's what the prophecy is. And Ahab goes, I knew it. I knew it. Seeing he never says anything good about me, any, anything at all. And one of the other prophets comes up and actually slaps the prophet Micaiah. It's a very vibrant scene. Slaps the prophet Micaiah for indicating that they were all wrong and he was right in decreeing disaster. And so in verse 27 and 28, King Ahab puts him in prison. And he says, look, stay here, keep him in prison until I return. And prophet Micaiah just laughs and he says, look, if you return, then the Lord didn't speak through me. And that's the end of it. King Ahab goes off to war and dies. We never hear from the prophet Micaiah again. And that's the story. I find the most fascinating part here is that Micaiah gives a fake news prophecy in the middle of it. He tells him the wrong thing. Why does he do this? He does it to help the king reflect. Now, I lie to my kids all the time. There's a confession. I lie to them all the time, but I only lie to them when they know it's a joke. I might say to them, yes, there is a monster in your cupboard. His name's Gerald. I've been feeding him on the lunch scraps that you haven't been eating from school. I lie to them. But why am I, why do I do it? I do it because it helps them use their discernment and reflect on what is being said and even reflect on their own response. Ideally, I mean, they, they might end up being terrified by Gerald, the monster in their cupboard, but ideally they start to realize, hold on, actually there isn't a monster. And if there is a monster, maybe he's not that scary. And it forces them to think about it. In the same way, King Ahab and Micaiah, Micaiah is forcing King Ahab to reflect on what God is actually saying himself, because King Ahab knows already what God's will is in this. He knows he's not meant to go to war. The prophet Micaiah needs him to recognize that, not just be told, but recognize that. And he still goes against it. But you can see that satire and fake news can develop curiosity and draw people deeper into faith and into their response. That's the first example I want to give you of why satire is significant, is important, should be considered by Christians looking to engage in a public space. One more story from history. And this is around Martin Luther, around the 1500s and the time of the great Protestant Reformation. And the point I want to make here is we get to see an example of how fake news and satire when used well, can subtly challenge powerful idols in culture and in the church. So Luther is a fascinating character. Not only was he a brilliant theologian, but he was also, it was around the time of the birth of the printing press. And he really was the first one to really utilize mass communication. The, the Reformation could not have happened without the printing press. And Luther, not only did he print out his pamphlets and theology, but he also printed out Lots of humor. He, he loved humor. He loved insulting people. If you ever look, uh, look up Luther insults on a webpage, it'll just come up with all these incredibly funny 
insults. So he'd call people, you abominable abomination. And he do things far worse than the jokes we make. Like really, some of them are quite crass, but some of them are very funny. One example is he did a flip book. So this is a picture of Pope at the time, who Luther didn't like the ball for obvious reasons for those who know Martin Luther. There's a critique of the Catholic Church and the corruption and power that he saw. And so there's a little flip book where you'll see on the side there, that's what the picture looks like. And then you flip it down. Oh, it's actually a gruesome demon. Now, this is, this would have been very shocking at the time, but also very funny to the masses who were starting to wrestle with these issues themselves. And this Luther's, this is Luther's way of helping them. He even, so in 19, in 1542, Luther actually anonymously published a um, pamphlet. So he did an anonymous pamphlet, similar to what the Damascus drop there are doing today, published anonymously. It was called the new pamphlet of, from the Rhine and it advertised sensational relics. So if you, for those who know a bit of church history, the relics were the things that many in the church would say, if you come and touch this relic or pray over this relic, then you'll get tunnel purgatory and you give us money for that as well. This is be a fundraiser for the church. And Luther thought this was the worst thing ever. It was disrupting salvation. It was distorting faith. And so he wrote this anonymous pamphlet where he was, there was this new ex exhibition of relics being put on. And the relics included, and I'm reading here straight from it, three flames from the burning bush of Mount Sinai, two feathers and an egg from the Holy Spirit, one half of the archangel Gabriel's wing, a whole pound of the wind that roared by Elijah in the cave of Mount Horeb, a large piece of the shouts with which the children of Israel tumbled the walls of Jericho, five nice strings from the harp of David, and three beautiful locks of Absalom's hair, which got caught in the oak and left him hanging. Which I find hilarious. But you see what he's doing here. He, he ends up confessing that it was him later on who wrote this, but he's using satire to raise really important points of theology and culture and what he saw as false teaching in the church. Fake news and satire can subtly challenge powerful narratives and cultural idols, and it pushes people, after they laugh, they start thinking, they reflect on what they believe and why. I want to go into my last section here and just talk about creative approaches to breaking down divides. Some of our, our work is in fake news stories. Here's some examples of some of the ones we do. Bezos now signaling the first rich man to ride a camel through the eye of a needle. Zuckerberg announces launch of first ever virtual reality meta church. This is one of our Olympic ones. Christian athletes yet to win Olympic medal after repeatedly allowing others to finish first. And can you see a little bit of what we're doing and why? We're actually stirring up interesting discussions and interesting points about what church is meant to be, what an online reality church work, even the Zoom church, what's the aspects of that that work and don't work, what it means to be a Christian competitor. You know, how competitive should Christians be? What, what is the goal of that? All trying to just bring up these interesting topics. It's all about layering things for us. So obviously you can look at this and you can laugh at the meme and then you can move on. For some people who want to go deeper on Facebook or something, we'll have a whole story attached, fake news story where you can read and work through. And there's all of the little jokes, which actually all make these subtle and interesting points and explore the story or the issue at hand. 
if you want to go even deeper, we've got biblical verses scattered through or references to biblical verses scattered through. And then finally, at the end, we, we always post an article, which is, encourages people who want to read a bit more about the question of maybe Christians in sport. It allows them to do that further reading. Now, we think that this is a creative approach to breaking down divides because firstly, we, we mock both sides of politics. We mock the church and outside the church, but we do it in a way to help people laugh and think. We think that humor is an important way of taking the sting out of issues. Some of these issues can be really quite, I would say vaccinations, for example, people feel very strongly about it, but by joking about vaccinations, you know, on both sides of the debate, you actually help people to be maybe a bit less defensive. And when you help people be a bit less defensive and they're not getting offended by things, it does help break down those barriers. It does help think about these issues a little bit more from a, a safer spot where we're trying to hold the Bible in one hand and the newspaper, or at least the funny pages of the newspaper in the other hand, really helping to draw out not only these interesting discussions, but also what the Bible might have to say to these issues that we face every day. And we, we get confronted by in the news and in social media. Uh, and for an example, one of the, the key messages that we have is in joking about politics is that salvation doesn't come from politics. That's not where salvation comes from. We, we, we have this tendency to deify or demonize in politics, but for Christians, we seeking to transcend it. That's not where salvation comes from. That's not where our hope is in. And once you realize that again, I think you're able to read and assert and engage in ways that are, are much more productive, much less divisive. Rick also mentioned at the start about these two characters we've developed. Woke Jesus, I'll start with. This is a, a quite a confronting one for some people. This is the idea that uh, woke Jesus is this image of Jesus that has been created by the far left of politics. This is who Jesus is. He, he does all this wonderful things. You know, anything that I would do is what woke Jesus does. And so what we decided to do is, is mock this character who strolls around and gives these really progressive statements to people. So in this one, you're, instead of your sins are forgiven, the seed of the man coming through the roof, what Jesus is forgiving is white privilege. In the second one here, we have woke Jesus telling Mary that actually she should be more like Martha and get a full-time job instead of just sitting at his feet, which again, to have a commentary on the feminist movement and some of the aspects that are challenging around being a stay-at-home mum or being family-focused. And look, for some people, this is quite shocking. Some people might find it hilarious. Other people have said they hated it. I would accuse blasphemy, obviously, as part of this. Though I think it's quite funny because we've got a lot of people who love this stuff because they think that any image of Jesus is actually blasphemous and therefore they welcome the mocking of it. Now, this went really well when we started doing work Jesus. And so we decided though we needed to be balanced. And so we created the new character, which is our alt-right Paul. Now, <laughs> it's the same thing that Christians often get sucked into not just left ideologies, but we get sucked into right-wing ideologies as well. And so alt-right Paul is, you know, what, what people might imagine uh, a what Paul to be on the, on the right. He got arrested for his unvaccinated status. That's why he's in prison. Plus he punched a cop, which has happened here in Australia with the protests going on. Nevertheless, he'll proclaim government totalitarian without fear for your sake. And I guess the idea of this is to help us understand and be challenged by, hold on, this is not what they say. This is not who they are. And literally the way that, that we come up with these 
is we'll read a passage of scripture and then we'll flip it and try and say the opposite of what it's saying. Not to mock scripture. We love the Bible. We want people to read the Bible, but to help people to go, hold on, what, what does the Bible actually say? What does Paul say? What does Jesus actually say? And is this what he would actually do? So I, I want to finish with just an encouragement to, to think differently about how we engage. This is our attempt. You know, I don't know whether we've been successful or not yet in the reach and engagement we want to have, but there's certainly been some pathways through and some surprising connections. We've had uh, atheist comedians who we've made jokes about will then come and engage with us in really productive ways on satire. It's been wonderful. Um, but encouraging people to think about how we transcend the game how we transcend media, how we transcend politics. This is really what we're trying to do. And I want to read you a last story and observation from a, a theologian, Catholic theologian called William Kavanagh. And he, he wrote this article called uh, From One City to Two, where he explores Augusta and the, the concept of the city of man and city of God and what that actually is. And he tells this, this story right at the end of this article. It's a story about a, an opera called the Ariane of Naxos. I haven't pronounced that, but that's the the name of the opera. And let me just read to you here. The action is set in the house of the richest man in Vienna, who is busy throwing a feast for numerous guests. The host is a man of indiscriminate taste. He has scheduled dinner to be followed by two performances, one a tragic opera based on the Adrian legend, and the other a comedy featuring harlequins, nymphs, and buffoons. The pompous composer of the opera is outraged when he discovers that his masterwork would be followed by such a frivolous opera. The situation becomes much worse, however, when the master of the house announces that in order to leave time for the fireworks display, both the tragedy and the comedy will have to be performed simultaneously on the same stage. The composer objects to these other actors infiltrating his tragedy as his opera is the symbol of mankind in solitude. The major domo, however, explains that his lordship has watched the rehearsals and has been greatly displeased that in a mansion so magnificent of his, that a scene so poverty-struck and lonely should be set before him. He wants to enliven the tragedy with characters from the comedy. And so Zerbinetta and her troupe of comedians prepare to bring light to the Adrian story. Zerbinetta said the dancing master is a, a past mistress of improvisation, as she always plays herself and she's at home in scenes of any, any kind. So as the curtain rises on the second act of Strauss's opera, Ariande is at the grotto grieving the abandonment of her lover, Theasus, and she resolves to await Hermes, the messenger of death, to take her away to the underworld, the realm of death, that in death is peace and a cessation of suffering and corruption. However, Zerbinetta and a troupe of comedians interrupt Ariane's tragedy and alter the direction of the opera. Zervanetta tries to convince Ariander that she wants not death, but a new lover. And on the scene comes the rakish young god Bacchus, whom she first mistakes for the messenger of death. Eventually, however, she's won by his wooing and she embraces life instead of death as he carries her off to the heavens. Now, the reason Kavanagh tells this story is he said that for Augustine, the stage is the world on which the one drama of salvation history is being enacted. The earthly city and the city of God are two intermingled performances. One a tragedy, the other a comedy. There are not two sets of props, no division between goods of spiritual and temporal, infinite and finite, 
Both cities are concerned with the same question. What is the purpose of human life? The difference is the city of God tells a story that we believe to be true and tells it, I guess we could describe it as the comedy of redemption. So I wonder to finish with that story, just to get you thinking about how we engage in the public space, that we're on the same stage, same props, but very different ends. And the comedy of redemption is actually what we're trying to bring. Thank you very much. Before we go to open Q&A, I had a few questions that I wanted to get into with you a little bit. All right, that was our talk from the director of the Damascus Drop Bear. After the presentation, we had a chance to talk and take questions about the influence American politics and American media are having on Australian politics. And we talked about times when satire has pushed people farther apart rather than bringing them closer together, and how we can all get better at discerning what's real from what's not online. If you want to see clips from the Q&A portion, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and we'll share bits and pieces of that in the next few weeks. Now, next year, we're going to start offering special events like this one pretty regularly, and the next one we're hosting is an interactive workshop on talking with your loved ones about race. That one's going to be open to anyone, and it's happening on February 22nd. But a lot of the classes and events we're working on for next year are only going to be available to people who have already taken one of our 101 level courses. So if Pastor Charlie Drew or I have come to your church, then you've been to one of our 101 level courses. If we haven't, don't worry. Just sign up for Christian Civics Foundations. This is our six-week online cohort program that will equip you with the skills you need to understand, relate to, and work with people across cultural and political divides. The next Foundations cohort starts on January 6th. So make a New Year's resolution to break out of the culture war mindset, break out of the us-them thinking that's tearing our churches apart and pushing people away from Jesus, and start learning to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. That's it for this week. Visit christiancivics.org for the show notes and to sign up for Christian Civics Foundations or the workshop on having hard conversations about race. And we'll be back next week. Until then, I hope you all have a safe, healthy, and very Merry Christmas. <laughs>